So tonight I'd like to, uh, you know, go a little bit more into detail about the Vipalasa and uh, also touch on the first one in particular, which is uh, seeing what is impermanent and Nietzsche as impermanent Nietzsche. So the basic meaning of, of confusion, delusion, ignorance is, is to believe that something is in a way that in fact it is actually not. So that's the basic definition of what delusion is. And you know, therefore meditation is more about letting go than about gaining more. So we have to let go this uh, delusion, confusion, ignorance, which is a result of conditioning over this life and over many, many lifetimes, which then, you know, presents itself as the, those four vipalasa. And I think it's a very lovely um, image to imagine, you know, like Michelangelo, the very famous sculptor, he always saw the sculpture already waiting in the uncut stone. And so we also, we know the truth is already waiting in our everyday experience. We just need to let go of that which is extra and then, you know, reveal the truth. And seeing through this net of delusion, which is created by ignorance, you know, seeing beyond hope and fear, which keeps us bound to the will of samsara, of you know, repeating the same patterns again and again, you know, in a day, in an hour, in a year, in a lifetime, in many, many lifetimes. So shortly speaking, we, we uh, perceive things wrongly in regards to what can bring us happiness. Well, we all the while are thinking that we are seeing things correctly. And then we are acting and speaking and thinking in ways which actually don't bring us that happiness we hope for. Because we think the happiness comes from protecting and from getting more well as the path shows us that the happiness is coming from letting go of this forvipalasa, really. And then, because of that letting go, being able to see clearly and relating to the world and relating to the inner world and outer world in ways which are in accordance with Dhamma. So these vipalasas, is there different translations for this word? For example, Venerable Suchato translates it as distortions. Venerable Bodhi translates it as inversions. Joseph Goldstein relates, uh, speaks about it as hallucinations. And in the old translations in, you know, from the last century or so, or even last two centuries, sometimes been called perversions. So I personally like distortions. And those fourfold distortions which you all have on, on the piece of paper we gave you, they manifest on three levels. 
three levels of depths. The perception, sanya, mind or thinking, citta, and view, ditti. So that's the three levels on which those four distortions manifest. And those levels, they are not necessarily hierarchical, but they work together. For example, you know, the second level, citta, mind or thoughts, those minds or thoughts, they are forming the views. Whereas the thoughts and the views together uh, influence how we perceive. So it's, it's like a, a net rather than a step-by-step, step, but it's a net of, of uh, ignorance, which is the result of this working together of those three levels. And uh, so I want to just go through them. So the first one, perception, sanya. Perception remembers and recognizes distinguishing marks of experience. For example, you know, when I come into the room and then I see the lamp, I know this is a lamp. And so I don't have to every time kind of, you know, start again from square one. I already know things where there's light coming out and there's like somewhere you can switch on and off. We call that a lamp. So that, uh, you know, it's a conditioned function. And for example, you know, for a vulture, rotten meat for a vulture, it's a meal, whereas for us it would be something really disgusting. And for me, this is a lamp, and for a vulture, I don't know what he would think, what that is, or she. Nothing is not, can't eat it, so probably not interesting. So the, the, the way how we're remembering and recognizing experiences is con deeply conditioned and can be confused at times. For example, you know, we go through the forest and there is a piece of wood or a piece of rope on the forest floor and for a moment we think it's a snake, you know, and the whole body kind of contracts and is ready to jump. Maybe you have experienced that. And then you look again, oh, no, it's just a piece of wood. And the whole body relaxes. Whereas... You know, another being would not have the same reaction if they don't need to be afraid of snakes. There won't be the same reaction, which is very deep, deep in our uh, conditioning, you know, as homo sapiens, you know, who need to have very vulnerable bodies and are not very fast and not very strong compared with many other creatures. They have, to be, have these knee-jerk reactions. And then the next level is citta mind, that's the thought world. For example, you know, when, let's say I, you know, am a, of a fearful nature maybe and have had some unpleasant experiences with snakes, I've been conditioned by my mother maybe who was afraid of snakes. I was bitten by a snake one day, you know. So then if I see that the, rope on the forest floor and for a moment, you know, I have this knee-jerk reaction and, and it startles me. 
And then maybe, you know, in my mind gets kicked off, like thinking about snakes. So then I go in the forest, being a little bit kind of cautious and afraid and thinking about those experiences I've heard. So that would be then, you know, the thing going influencing. And also because I've heard about snakes in the past from my mother, which also, you know, has been conditioning my, my thinking. So they, they work together. And then the next level is, chit, is, is, is view or titi, which would be, you know, if I would be, uh, develop the real phobia of snakes. So that's, uh, you know, really very en entrenched way of looking at something, which even there's evidence of things to be otherwise, we can't really put it down. So even then somebody comes and says, here in the forest, there are really very rarely that there are snakes and, and they are even not poisonous, so you don't need to be afraid. But still, there's such a fear there, I can't put it down. So then I just cho choose to not go for a walk. So, you know, in order to experience those vipalasa and really kind of dislodge them, we have to, to learn to move through, the, through these perceived limitations and open and expand the mind beyond those limitations. And when it's, a, you know, when it's on the level of you, for example, a phobia, that's going to be not easy. We might even need to go you know, to a therapist and get some help. So we need to learn you know, to experience fully, to be fully with our experience in the four, four establishments of mindfulness and you know, let that whole thing unravel, not needing to go somewhere else, not needing you know, to go into the vipalasa, but being able to just stay with our experience. And if we can't, you know, if, for example, if the energetic reaction in the body is so strong, then we tend usually, it's unpleasant, feels unpleasant, and then we tend to split off the energy and we go into the head and we, we start getting caught, sinking and sinking and sinking and trying to sink our way out of it. And of course that doesn't work. And in that manner, you know, if we do that, if we get in court, then we give our experience a meaning or a quality that it doesn't really possess. So, for example, you know, if, if I really have a phobia of snakes, I think I have to protect myself whenever there is like a forest and there is too much nature and, and it's maybe a little bit kind of wild, then the mind just runs riot and and I I just can't uh, hold that in awareness I need I just get caught up in it and and start believing it so you know giving our experience a meaning and a quality that it doesn't really possess you know thinking that this is actually a protection if I believe that that it will protect me from a negative experience. But in reality is through believing in it, I create, I create something which isn't really there. <laughs> 
and also you know, in the first time in the practice when we really see things correctly, completely correctly, is at the time of, of stream entry. That's when the first and the third of the vipalasa are seen through for a moment. And then some of the fetters are permanently you know, let go of. And that's an experience we never forget again. So then you know, afterwards, when that opening occurs, of course, you know, we again superficially experience the impermanent as permanent, but we don't believe in it anymore. And the fourth vipalasa is, uh, you know, seen through a non-returner, the third level of uh, awakening. And uh, the second one, seeing what is painful as pleasant, is seen through <coughs> at the last level, at the fourth level of arahantship. So it's like the crack opens more and more until the whole net just falls off. So only Arahants or Buddhas, you know, see things as they truly are. And mindfulness alone is, is not enough because we still bend and filter our experience. Because the craving, you know, which is uh, the attachment, which is there, has such a strong influence. And uh, the five hindrances feed the vipalasa. So whenever we are caught in one of the five hindrances, the, we're feeding the habit of the vipalasa getting stronger. And whenever we are becoming aware of it and step out of the hindrances, we start to decondition the vipalasa. The grip they have on us is getting lighter and lighter. So and because you know we are under the influence of those um, four vipalasa, it's it's very important that we and essential actually for the past to to establish ourselves in right view. So that even you know when we are still under the influence of the vipalasa on a, on the level of perception and, and mind. If we are established in, on, in right view, then we don't, you know, we don't uh, align ourselves with with them anymore because we know, even, you know, our mind says all kind of things, and and we, for example, experience, you know, somebody as hostile, and we know exactly now that's just like a habit of mine, you know, if somebody looks at me in a certain way, like my mother has looked at me when I was a toddler, then I always feel threatened. And then I'm not going to react, even I still have the experience. Because I've, through right view, I have, you know, seen clearly that if I grip on to these thoughts, I become my thoughts. So on the on the perception level and on the on the mind level, thought level, the vipalasa might still operate. But if we have right view, if we know about 
what the Four Noble Truths are, then we can we can stop that process of becoming my thoughts or becoming my perceptions. I can just hold steady with it and not fall into it. And then if that is done, you know, several times, then the, the vipalasa just, uh, they become less convincing. So this is why right view is at the beginning of the Noble Eightfold Path, because it protects us from, you know, making grave mistakes. And there's an understanding of karma, of action with intention. So we have, you know, that gives us, if we have understood that, that gives us enough energy, gives us enough strength to not, you know, uh, go with the patterns. Even it feels very seductive and it feels like good for a moment, you know, because you can release the energy into saying something or doing something or eating something or whatever, shopping something for a moment, but then afterwards there's remorse and it can be very complicated to repair what we have said. So if you have seen that with, with awareness often enough and understand you know, that the root of that issue is the attachment, the believing in something, then that gives us, gives us that uh, conviction you know, that we can actually step out of that. And that's how we you know, let go more and more of, of that uh, being caught in those wrong views. And how how it's how it that, that is accomplished? It's simply accomplished by cultivating different ways of perceiving. And the four establishments of mindfulness, the four satipatthana, are basically the template for training ourselves in different ways of perceiving and paying attention to features of experience we usually don't look at such as paying attention to impermanence. And then through paying attention to our experience in that way, our, usually you know, we hang on to the content of our experience a lot, to the thinking mind, what the stories we are thinking about. And if we are training ourselves in those four establishments, then... Uh, the awareness, you know, starts to shift from content to structure. And we see more and more clearly, yeah, it's all of the stories I've ever told myself. They're all impermanent. They're all unsatisfactory. And then if you've seen that often enough, then the, the kind of the pull of the story starts to become less. And because we, we start to get real interested in, in the structures, because we can see the repetitiveness of it. And then, you know, those, to see those three characteristics, which are the structure of all experiences we can have, 
That's the liberating key. Then whatever happens, you know, the most wonderful thing and the most horrible thing, they are both impermanent. And then, you know, our life becomes more peaceful because of that. We can still enjoy the birthday cakes and still protect ourselves from, you know, getting COVID or whatever. Of course, we do all of those things, but it's not done with such a kind of um, intensity because we see the lawfulness of all of this and the, and that the non that it is non-personal it's it, this is just how it is and in that recognition there's a lot of peace in that and uh, you know in the, the scriptures say in order to develop right view there is Yes, two conditions. The first one is the voice of another, being, you know, hearing it from someone. And the second one is um, wise friends. And oh, I said that wrong, actually. The voice of another and wise friends is actually the same thing. Sorry. But the second one is wise attention, or yoniso manisikara. And the word yoni means womb. That means you're going back to the root of it, going back to the womb before something is born. Yoni so manisikara. Wise attention or radical attention. And then also the three refuges which we were taking yesterday and the precepts, they are also protecting us on the path. You know, while we are developing right view, they give us like a certain kind of a framework which helps us to steer clear. And then if we, you know, have that uh, clarity to pay attention to, for example, impermanence, in the meditation and also in our daily lives, then uh, that will transform our attitude, that will transform our chitta, that will transform our views, that will just go deeper and deeper. And then the, the, the result of paying attention to impermanence is uh, dispassion in, in the Pali language viraga and the word raga comes from the word ranch which means to color and this is like washing away the passion through seeing impermanence the passion just becomes less because that which is impermanent cannot be held cannot be owned and, and through seeing that very very clearly the, uh, the passion is just washed out like a stain in a piece of cloth. You know, if in the first wash it will, won't come out, but if you wash it many, many times, it gets lighter and lighter. And that's what the practice 
you know, is doing for us. <clears throat> Washing out the passion which is, uh, you know, staining the mind. And, uh, and through that washing away of, of the passion through the viraga, we can see one more clearly the experience, how it really is, the full spectrum of it. As I was saying in the, earlier today, we can see the arising, the existing, and then the ceasing. We can see all three, we can see all three, we are not just glued at the arising. And we can, you know, really pay attention also to the ceasing, which is something we have to train ourselves because that doesn't come easy. Because when something goes towards ceasing, our mind is already on the next thing. Because it doesn't wanna be with the ceasing. Because that's somehow experiences a lack. It's a loss. And we turn away, turn to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing. And that's samsara. So, you know, if you can really pay attention to the whole spectrum, then letting go is the response of the mind. Becomes easy to let go when we see the whole spectrum. And my first teacher, Buddha Dasa, he always said, you know, throwing it all back to nature, letting go, throwing it all back to nature, the rightful owner of all of it, the rightful owner of our bodies, the rightful owner of everything we possess. It all belongs to nature. <clears throat> and uh, I brought again one of the poems which you know is a poem of a mother who has lost her daughter and that you know that, that grief and that suffering um, is described in the poem and then she meets the Buddha who helps her to understand that Anybody who is born is going to die. And death is not the opposite of life. Death is just the opposite of birth. And at the moment we are born, our death comes with us at the moment we are born. And is always with us until it manifests. And you know that sense of loss that can often you know, be an incentive for people to get interested in, in some kind of a practice. In my case, it was like that. I was um, 28 when my mother very suddenly died with a horse riding accident. And um, that was very, I had never thought about all of these things at that quite late in life. Already I feel now, thinking how could I have gone for uh, 28 years without really thinking much about it. So that really pulled out the rug under my 
feet and was completely changed my life. I always say my mother gave birth to me twice. Once, you know, when I was born as a baby and the second time when she died. Because then my whole life completely, re total reset, total update of the whole system. And then I felt like I really would like to find someone who can teach me about what is going on here. And then, you know, I had that really very strong aspiration. And, and then within one and a half years, I found myself in a monastery in the south of Thailand, stumbling, you know, into the monastery. And a meditation retreat started three days later, so I just thought I'm going to pay attention for a few days because I didn't think I could handle 10 days, but actually I did. And, and then I returned and returned, and then I ended up to become a nun. So it all started with this very powerful message of impermanence. And, you know, the, the myth also has it, is what the Buddha also was, uh, by, you know, seeing what's called the four heavenly messengers, a dead person, a sick person, an old person, and a, and a samana, that he was motivated, you know, to leave home and, and get interested in some kind of teaching. So it's a very powerful teacher if we, if we open the door for it. So I'm going to share the poem with you. And I read first the contemporary poem by Medi Weingast. Which is inspired by the Terikata. It's called The Earth. How many days and nights did I wander the woods calling your name? Chiva, my daughter, Chiva, my heart. Late one night, finally exhausted, I fell to the ground. Oh, my heart, I heard a voice say, 84,000 daughters, all named Chiva, have died and been buried here in this boundless cemetery. Cemetery. You call a world. For which of these chivas are you mourning? Lying there on the ground, I shared my grief with those 84,000 mothers, and they shared their grief with me. Somehow, I found myself healed, not of grief, but of the immeasurable loneliness that attends grief. My sisters, those of you who have known the deepest loss, as you cry out in the wilderness, just make sure you stop every so often to listen for a voice calling back. And then the... So the bikuni is called Ubiri. Ubiri Terikata. Mother, you cry in the forest, O Chiva. Get hold of yourself, Ubiri. 84,000 daughters, all with that same name. 
the ones that said they were alive. All have been burned in this cremation ground. So which one of them are you grieving for? He, this is the Buddha, he pulled out the error that was hard for me to see. The one that I nourished in my heart. He expelled the grief for a daughter, the grief that had overwhelmed me. Today, the error is pulled out. I am without hunger, completely free. I go to the Buddha, his Dhamma and his Sangha for refuge. I go to the sage for refuge. So that's the original. And, and then I want to share at the end, I want to share a quote with, which is quite often at the end of suttas. And I think it relates to the Vipalasa. Magnificent, Master Gautama, magnificent, Master Gautama. The Dhamma has been made clear in many ways by Master Gautama, as though he were turning upright what had been turned upside down, revealing what was hidden, showing the way to one who was lost, or holding up a lamp in the dark for those with eyesight to see forms. I go for refuge to Master Gautama and the Dhamma and to the Sangha. From today, let Master Gautama remember me as a lay follower who has gone for refuge for life. So I think I want to end here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.